Welcome to VMN Volume 2, Episode 5. This episode was compiled on November 22, 2020, using footage from 2010. VMN is produced and distributed out of unceded Abenaki territory in so-called northeastern Vermont. We seek to provide a platform for movements pushing for liberation in this area and beyond. This week's episode features a discussion with Spencer Sunshine regarding anti-Semitism on the left. The discussion was done at the 2010 ARA Anti-Racist Action Conference. Forgive the sound quality. I believe the discussion is of value. about what uh, left anti-Semitism is, 
if it exists, how it works, uh, what is anti-Semitism and what isn't, uh, what's legitimate Palestine solidarity politics, um, what's anti-Zionism and that's not anti-Semitism. So I'm going to give you a, a bare-bones version of what probably would be a four-hour talk, um, and we'll try to leave time for Q&A. One of the things I want to say this is the caveat. I don't have time to talk about the terrible conditions that Palestinian people live under. In Gaza, there's blockaded, and there's a humanitarian crisis there. In the West Bank, they've lived under 40 years of occupation. There's no freedom of movement. The separation wall has become a mass land grab. Settlements continue to expand, and there's no end in sight. So this is a talk for people who already understand all these things. It's not a talk for people who don't have a background about Palestinian uh, politics, but it's for people who do. Not a talk for right-wingers or people who think that there's a conflict in the Middle East because Palestinians are all terrorists or anti-Semites. What I'm telling you is an internal critique of the left uh, by people on the left. And I want everyone want to understand that that's what this talk is. Not an anti-Palestinian talk. Often not, there's nothing to do, if you went to the West Bank and worked with the ISM, this is neither here nor there. This is not what I'm critiquing. I'm not critiquing people's actions. Um, I don't consider myself Zionist when I talk about national self-determination and how that relates to issues of Zionism. doesn't mean I see it as a positive thing. I don't believe that Israel should have been founded. I don't believe it succeeded in its original goals, one of which was to normalize anti-Semitism. They thought that in Europe, uh, Jews were persecuted because they were considered a stateless people, so they found a state, and that the Jews would be considered like Italians are, like Italians in America are just, you know, well, the reason they're familiar with this tomorrow. Um, Israel's uh, failed in that goal. The establishment has had a catastrophic effect on the uh, Palestinians and it's inflamed the tensions in the Middle East. On, so it's, on its own terms, it's been a failure. My own view is that I'm a, a zero, one, or two stater. Um, if people want to create a united uh, binational federation of uh, you know, worker-owned collectives and communes in, uh, in the area of Mende Palestine, I support that. If people can create a binational state in the region, I support that. If people can create two states in the region, I support that. Whatever is going to resolve the conflict. I also want to say I'm going to talk about there's a difference between Palestine solidarity and anti-Zionism. These are two different things and people sometimes conflate them. Um, some Palestine solidarity people are Zionists. We'll talk about what this word means. And some anti-Zionists aren't interested in Palestine issues at all. You'll hear like the Zionists are in Sudan or you know, the Zionists control the, the banks and, uh, and Hollywood. So these, these aren't issues that are, this is anti-Zionism that is not the form of anti-Zionism but it doesn't have to do with Palestine. So, uh, what's at stake here? The first thing one hears about relation, in relation to discussion on anti-Semitism on the left is that the complaints of the works of Zionists are running interference for Israeli crimes. Unfortunately, this has been true, and furthermore, the left, which itself acted as a very deep history of anti-Semitism, uh, has done a terrible job of dealing with this, this situation. Criticizing Israel, including, up to and including calling for its abolition as a Jewish state, is not by itself anti-Semitic. Um, but to a lesser or greater extent, depending which discourse you're paying attention to, attention to, many of the ways in which the left criticizes Israel are influenced by anti-Semitism. So again, I'm not saying that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I'm saying that anti-Semitism is one of many different influences on many different types of anti-Zionism. And we have to try to, this is why it's a difficult talk, we have to try to separate them out by understanding what's Zionism, what's anti-Zionism, what's anti-Semitism, and what's the complex relationship between them all. So the most obvious problem we have is that traditional anti-Semitic narratives, tropes, and images can be found throughout the left, and, and especially in relationship to the betrayal of the, the, betrayal of the conflict in Israel and Palestine. I believe this is because anti-Semitism is a powerful and effective political mobilizing tool, and parts of the left are intentionally harnessing this energy to use in the Palestine solidarity work. Not everyone, but, but some are. 
So what's happening, and this is I think what we're seeing here in Portland, is that since these anti-Semitic narratives are existing simultaneously both on the left and the right, we're starting to see cross-pollination and fusion of these two tendencies. So the stars are basically coming into alignment here. Um, in a sense, if you look at it in a certain way, uh, we're a hair's breadth from what the third position fascists want to be with an alignment of people who support um, ethnic separatism and embrace anti-Semitism. The more fundamental problem going on is the refusal to address anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism itself is a deep and ongoing global issue. Um, specifically problematic is the left's refusal to acknowledge that the establishment of Israel was an attempt by certain Jews to address this problem after everything else had failed. Uh, many parts of the left want to dissolve Israel, which again, I don't, I don't think itself is anti-Semitic, but they don't answer the question um, how anti-Semitism will be dealt with after the dissolution of Israel. And I think the left has to answer that question in order to move ahead on a basis that that isn't anti-Semitic. And particularly the left's refusal both to engage with this, but more importantly, because it doesn't engage with this, it wants to treat Israel simply as the product of global economic forces by seeing it merely as imperialism or colonialism. This creates a fertile ground out of which the more obvious manifestations of anti-Semitism will inevitably grow, and they'll end up in attacked as Jews as such, wherever they are. So uh, partly we're seeing, um, I try to look at all some of the statistics on uh, um, attacks and anti-Semitic attacks and incidents. They're up all over Europe. Uh, they've doubled in some places. In Malmo, Sweden, there's articles about the small Jewish population there is actually leaving Malmo and moving to Israel. Um, attacks are up in Canada, and they're up slightly in the U.S. So there actually is, is a you know, uptick, and, uh, less than in the U.S., but much more stronger in Europe. And ultimately, this is going to be a question about Jews. It's a question about the left itself, and what it stands for, and what it believes. The left has struggled, and not always successfully, with questions of race, imperialism, gender, and sexuality. Um, and we need to insist that this is an issue that's confronting the left and needs to be put back on the table. Um, 10 or 15 years when I was doing anti-fascist work uh, or anarchist work in the early 90s, you, you have the laundry list of things that the left was against, and anti-Semitism would always be on that list. Uh, if I was looking at an old copy of Love and Rage, and there was a... Um, there was a, a memorial on, on, the, on Kristallnacht, and I think if you tried to do that today, people, people would actually attack you, not just as anti-Semitism, opposition to anti-Semitism, not on the laundry list, um, but any attempt to even do something like a Holocaust memorialization, will, you will, if you try to do that on the left, you'll end up being attacked uh, as a Zionist or someone trying to instrumentalize, instrumentalize the Holocaust as an attempt to uh, run interference for Israeli crimes. So, who are Jews? There's a lot of people sometimes get confused about who Jews are and what Judaism is, and I think a lot of Jews themselves are confused about this question. Um, I'm going to ask later about Jewish demographics. I'm going to skip this part. Uh, Judaism is a religion, but Jews, at least in the past, are a number of different different ethnicities. There's three main branches of Jews. There's Ashkenazi Jews, that's most all European Jews. Sephardic Jews are the descendants of those who were expelled from Spain and spread out through North Africa and the Middle East. Some of them went to Holland. Um, and the Mizrahi Jews, which is the Middle Eastern Jews. Some people only use a, a two instead of a three-part division here. There's also, Jews have also uh, are found in Africa, India, there used to be a Jewish community in China, etc. So each branch has, and then each of these branch has, branches has its own separate ethnic groups between them. So strictly speaking, someone's Jewish only if their mother's Jewish or if they did a formal conversion. Um, you can convert to the Hasidic sect if you want to. Um, I live in a, actually in the middle of an anti-Zionist Hasidic community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn now. Um, in practice, anyone 
many people will consider anyone Jewish if they have a direct Jewish family member and they remain a, uh, keep an identification with the Jewish tradition. Um, the Nazis, of course, saw anyone with one Jewish grandparent or more relatives as being racially Jewish, and this became Israel used this as the basis for its law of return. Uh, it, it reversed what the Nazis did. So there's the question, are Ashkenazi Jews white? In the past, people didn't use concepts like race. They tended to talk about nations. Um, today, we, this is roughly equivalent to what we call an ethnic group. Before World War II, especially in Europe, Jews were never considered to be a member of the nation that they lived in. They were citizens after emancipation happened in their early 1800s, but they weren't members of the national community. The left, however, always denied them the status of a separate nation themselves. The classic Leninist definition of a nation is a historically constituted stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in economic culture. Um, this is usually the definition used when uh, the left wants to say it's the right to national self-determination. And one of the problems with this is it was written by Stalin in 1913, and it was written in such a way specifically to exclude Jews from this definition. So you'll hear things like uh, Zionism is not national self-determination because Jews aren't a nation. Um, so this becomes a kind of a word game. Um, this isn't, again, to say that Zionism is national self-determination, but the reason that uh, Marxist Leninists used to reject that as, as sort of like, um, it, it doesn't have a, a real basis, I think. It's just, you know, they're using a definition that was written in such a way to exclude Jews to say why Jews uh, uh, can't have uh, national self-determination. In the post-World War II era in the U.S., um, that all the different pan-European ethnicities have basically been combined to create this racial category called white, the basis of the white privilege thesis. The Jews are basically offered a deal, Ashkenazi Jews are offered a deal. They could give up Yiddish and Yiddish-type culture and assimilate to white America, and they could keep their religion. So Judaism just became a religion, but the ethnic national part of the identity was supposed to go away. But many, if not most, uh, Jews or uh, secular Jews have a consciousness of themselves as something other than a simple understanding of white. In the U.S., I call Ashkenazi Jews a half-dissolved ethnic group. Um, but this, to understand what I'm saying, this doesn't mean that Ashkenazi Jews are to be understood as people of color, which sometimes you'll, you'll hear certain people want to do. It's sort of like a lateral move. So think about this. In the last 2,000 years, it's only for the last 50 years that Jews have been considered um, undifferent or unseparate from other Europeans. Um, this is... This is less than true in Europe. Um, they're still considered separate to some extent in Europe and in the Middle East. They remain a completely separate group, whether you see that group as ethnic, ethnically, nationally, racially, or religiously based. Um, I think this is important because Israel is commonly misunderstood as a theocracy, like in Iran. Uh, and in reality, I think it's an ethnocracy, the product of a revolutionary struggle by a historically oppressed group. Again, that doesn't mean we need to agree with it, support it, or support it, but it needs to be understood that way. So what's going on in Israel and Palestine is, um, I, I think in order to understand, we have to understand there's two revolutionary nationalisms, so two historically oppressed groups that are now directly in conflict with each other. Um, some of the Palestinian factions uh, code their resistance in specifically anti-Semitic terms. Some of the Israelis code their opposition to Palestinians in specifically racist terms. Um, and there's many political factions on both sides, and they're all running, running against each other. Some are more in alignment than others. Uh, some of the social democrats, we saw it like, around all of those are actually in alignment among certain social democratic factions in Israel and in Palestine. Um, so I think we need to approach the conflict in this matter if we're going to get to the core of the issue. So again, by saying there's two um, revolutionary nationalisms in conflict, I'm not saying we need to endorse the two-state solution um, or back one group or the other, but we have to, we have to understand them as both. We have to proceed from that kind of understanding. 
Um, can everybody hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, what is anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is not shoving Jews into ovens, or that's not all it is. I think sometimes if, it, if it's not, if it doesn't involve killing Jews, it's not anti-Semitism. It's a narrative about Jews. Frankfurt School philosopher Theodore Adorno called anti-Semitism a rumor about the Jews. It's not just about a, a bias towards a minority group. Uh, it has a lot of very odd social, psychosocial dynamics. Uh, Christian religious anti-Semitism, which led to modern anti-Semitism, started with the First Crusade around 1000 AD. You find prior versions of anti-Semitism, but they don't have the same kind of narratives and the same kind of weight that we do. So it's really with the Crusades that we start to find a modern dynamic of anti-Semitism. People often talk about Western anti-Semitism as if it suddenly and abruptly ended with the Holocaust, and that's not true. I mean, this huge, long dynamic is just like stop. Anti-Semitism is, not, is often not about what people really feel inside, or if they personally dislike Jews, Jewish culture, or Jewish religion. Um, it's a series of bizarre assumptions about who Jews are, and often these assumptions have very little to do with Jews themselves. So let's talk about some of the bad frameworks, the bad political frameworks that, um, that people use. The Europeans sometimes call this stuff structural anti-Semitism. Uh, Together, the misguided populism and anti-hegemonic thrust of these ideas becomes what, what's called the socialism of fools, which is what German socialist August Babel called anti-Semitism. All of these frameworks are simply incorrect ways of understanding economic and social relationships, whether they're referring to the Jews themselves or to some other group. Um, so some of these, you can use these frameworks and not the, 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 uh, the active agent in them will be the Jews, but I think it's still a framework that we should reject. Um, and as political actors yourselves, uh, I encourage you to recognize these frameworks and to reject them when you see them, in whatever form they are. So the first is conspiracy theories. So the basic conspiracy theory is that there's a secret elite which is controlling the nation or the world from behind the scenes. The people need to identify this hidden evil power and root it out, after which harmony and well-being will be restored. So this is the thrust of the main anti-Semitic text, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. Um, what's interesting is this book, it's plagiarism, but one of the books it's plagiarized from was originally about the Masons. And it's only later that the activation in, uh, in this narrative became the Jews. Um, so in the conspiracy theory narrative, uh, who the group is is interchangeable. And as we saw from the talk, uh, Anna talk here in Portland, it was hosted by 9-11 conspiracy groups. Once you have this framework, it's very easy to sort of anti-Semitize, um, uh, anti-Semitize the framework. Um, some people in the 9-11 truth movement do try to create um, uh, political barriers against uh, the secret elite being identified as the Jews, but once you have the framework, you can just flip out who that person is. So uh, another example in all of this is talk, he referred to the Frankfurt School as being this group which uh, has corrupted American culture, which is a plagiarization of, of Lynn's work. Um, but again, it's following the same anti-Semitic conspiracies theory. There's a small group of you know, elite people who are like corrupting the nation. So. In his, in uh, Alice's case, he used a um, literary technique called Gennectashane, in which a small group, stand, a, a small piece of something stands in for the whole thing. So sometimes people will say, it's like a metaphor, so people say, oh, I see a mast on the horizon and I mean a ship. So he says, I see a small group of Jews, but really, he's meaning all Jews. So, he says the Frankfurt School, they're all Jews, which also isn't even true. But. Second framework, which is a uh, um, uh, um, misguided framework, is the uh, usurpation of national sovereignty. It's a favor to the right, but you can also find it in the left. And this is the guiding work of um, the guiding frame that the work of people like Alison Weir of the website of Americans New use. So one of the main pillars of anti-Semitism is that Jews are a foreign body that disrupts the harmonious functioning of the nation. 
And this is one reason you'll find anti-Semitism go hand in hand with nationalism a lot. You'll see it in Scottish nationalism and Quebecois nationalism, and of course with German nationalism. You also see it here with paleocons like Patrick Cannon. His, um, in the past, he's had certain anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, so anti-Semitism goes doesn't have to go with nationalism, but it can go with it very well. So uh, the idea of dog driven about dog, the Zionist occupied government is a favorite of the white nationalist right uh, before. Um, both Dog and the idea that the Zionist lobby, uh, the idea that the Zionist lobby controls the U.S., not that there is one, but the idea that it controls the U.S. are both permutations of this idea. Um, so they're coming out of the same place, they're bubbling up from below and going on the left and right. Uh, but again, um, I, I think any, any notion that there's a small elite, especially that's a foreign body that's corrupting our nation from behind the scenes, is, is a bad framework. You should recognize these frameworks and reject them, whether they're talking about the Jews or not. Related to this is the classic anti-Semitic claim of dual loyalties. Um, this is very strong in Germany. The, you know, we hear the Zionist lobby are all foreign agents, and the Jews are all untrustworthy because of potential Zionists. Uh, we'll see, one of the main problems we see is that the criticism of Zionism, some people want to push them and say, no, no, it's not a criticism of Zionism, it's all Jews. Uh, on Dissident Voice website, you'll see an article, it's, uh, it's written by William Blum. There's, I think, several permutations of it. It's, it's not the Zionist lobby, it's the Jewish lobby. You know, okay, well, once, once you cross that line, you're, you're, you're over. <coughs> There's a good Adbusters article in 2004 which listed the neocons, the most, 50 most prominent neocons, uh, with symbols next to the names of those who are Jewish. So this is a sort of perfect example, because Ashkenazi Jews, who are potentially invisible and white people, must be identified and kept track of. This is why the Nazis gave the Jews yellow stars. This is why, I mean, they might not think that, but I think it's their logic. This is why Adbusters is listing all the neocons and making sure we know which ones are Jewish, right? It doesn't talk about their politics. It talks about what their religious or ethnic background is. So, let's talk about Tennessee McKinney, if you're interested, can ask in the Q&A. Um, the third bad framework is producerism and the critique of finance capital. Um, this became a vexing problem with the anti-globalization movement. Uh, in some ways, this is a kind of pseudo-socialism that sees economic problems as only involving unproductive capital. Instead of opposing capitalism as a system itself, it only sees the problem of finance capital, particularly with lending and interest. Productive capital is seen as goods, so factories, farming, manual labor, while abstract rationalized forms of capital are bad. This is what led to the, the national socialism of the Nazis. They saw the factories and farming as represented by the Aryans, you know, the most combined sum that's tied to the land while banking and abstract reasoning were the province of the Jews. Uh, this, this kind of reasoning is a special problem to the left. Um, we need to oppose capitalism as a system, as a holistic system itself. It's not like some forms of capitalism are bad and other forms are good. You can, again, have this belief and not be anti-Semitic. I mean, you'll find these beliefs uh, in uh, predominant economics, which undergirds a lot of, like, um, uh, worker-owned collectives and co-ops and stuff, but um, if you... And, and they're not problematic. I mean, I think a lot of people here in Portland participate in sort of the economic strata. I've, I've worked in it off and on a lot. Um, but this can lead to a problem. It's led to a big problem in some ways in the anti-globalization movement. Again, if you're interested later, we can talk about like Edward Goldsmith and some of the other uh, people who came out of this, um, the National Alliance and others. I'm going to very briefly, because this is important, talk about uh, Moisey Pistone and the Pistone thesis. If you don't have a background in Marxism, this is probably going to go over your head, uh, so I apologize. I'm just going to run through it quick. Um, Pistone says that anti-Semitism is a kind of incorrect opposition to global capitalism. G. 
Jews were seen by the Nazis as shadows, ciphers, and never distractions, and so they were linked to exchange value versus use value. And so then the Aryans, the use value was associated with the Aryans in the bulk of my shop. So Nazi anti-Semitism, in particular, the, the, the camps were an attempt, a misguided attempt to destroy exchange value by killing the Jews while keeping the use value intact. As capitalism spreads through globalization, anti-Semitic anti-Zionism, it, it takes the place of the same sort of false anti-capitalism. He argues that the anti-globalization movement has shifted into anti-Zionism uh, because it has adopted anti-Semitic critiques of anti-Zionism and Israel is acting as a stand-in for capitalist globalization. Jews were always associated with internationalism, finance, capital, and abstraction versus the organic community that ties to the nation, so these same ideas are projected onto Israel. So um, one way of seeing the anti-globalization movement is, is a trajectory from anti-globalization to anti-war to anti-Zionism, but then argues it's a reversal. Uh, this, this is a influential theory on the, uh, the German, uh, um, the anti-German movement. So, although the Senate still separates themselves from them sometimes. We talk about code words, uh, also called dog whistle politics. This is when you employ coded language that appears to mean one thing to the general population, but has a different or more specific meaning for a targeted subgroup of the audience. It refers both to messages with, with an intentional subtext, and this is important, as well as to those where the the existence or intent of a secondary meaning is disputed. So it's not always just... Some, some people say Zionist and mean Jews. Some people say Zionist and could be read either way depending on who the receiver is. And it might not even be the intention of the person saying it. So you'll hear this. I think Zionism often functions as a code word, and I think this is one reason you always hear this term, and you very rarely... I mean, you'll often hear this term, and you don't always hear the term Israel. Um, there was in the last Gaza attack, there was a demonstration, and one prominent activist said, well, we need to march on the Zionist consulate. And I was like, the Zionist consulate? Why are you using this term? Uh, this person also had, in the past, uh, shown sympathy to uh, white nationalists. So I was just like... Uh, they, were, they were writing letters to Timothy McVeigh right before he was executed, trying to get other leftists to go uh, um, try to save him from execution. Um, so, so for people who are true anti-Semites who are really just trying to use uh, anti-Zionism as a kind of cover, this, this can be, when they say Zionist, this can be pure dog whistle. You'll see this in the work of the Institute for Historical Review. They were the main people propagating Holocaust revisionism in the U.S. They've abandoned that. They're now pure anti-Zionist. So if you look on their webpage, when they say Zionist, they mean Jew. And here's, uh, as I was going through the history of left anti-Semitism, this is a cool site. Uh, I kind of like James Martin. He was a... Uh, Individual anarchists wrote a book called Men Against the State, which I taught a lot in the 80s. It was one of the few good histories of American anarchism. He ended up being a board member of the Institute for Historical Review. So um, he's one of the many people who've moved from the left, I mean, maybe individuals are on the left, but you know, in our sphere, onto the, 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 the creepy, creepy right. Um, <laughs> there are often many people who use anti-Zionist narratives which are influenced by anti-Semitism because the narratives are influenced by anti-Semitism even though they're not anti-Semites themselves I think in a lot of anti-Zionist discourse you'll see it for most people you see it pop up at least once in a while some people it's a lot some people just like they'll have some people I've talked to for hours and everything we disagree on stuff but there'll be like one thing that will pop up and they're like why are you, why are you saying this one thing um there are often anti-Zionist narratives, so while it's not clear whether that narrative is derived from anti-Semitism or not, it's congruent with it. And so, um, whether they're conscious of this or not, this can act as a kind of code word. 
Um, often, a lot of these nerves are not incongruent with anti-Semitism. So, if people um, have an anti-Zionist politic, I encourage you to pose your um, critiques in a way that are incongruent with anti-Semitism, rather than just saying, "I'm not, you know, I'm not an anti-Semite." It's not anti-Semitic. I mean, does it is it, is, is it posed in a way that actually it can't work just with it in a seamless way? And then all these are mixed in with strongly worded criticisms of Israel um, that have no basis in anti-Semitism. And you'll see all these four things blend seamlessly into each other, uh, and often undistinguished from each other. You'll find all four on the same website, for example. I mean, maybe you'll find that the dog was the blank dog was still stuff more in the comments sections. Um, but you'll find the other three all, all blended together in the same news website. So we'll go through some elements of anti-Semitism. Uh, the first one, again, I think people uh, don't understand this. It's cyclical. Historically, uh, anti-Semitism has been cyclical and explosive. It goes in waves. It goes up and down. And it doesn't seem linked to any obvious pattern. Sometimes there'll be anti-Semitism in a community where there's lots of Jews, and sometimes you'll find it where there are no Jews. Um, there's anti-Semitism uh, anti in Japan, where there's never been a Jewish community. Um, it has a tendency to be explosive as it harnesses and then unleashes a lot of irrational elements. One reason Zionism was founded was to attempt to save Russian Jews from the pogroms, which had killed hundreds of thousands. Uh, this is one of the great ironies of uh, the Holocaust. But until the 1930s, in Germ Germany was a place where Jews were most assimilated and most accepted into the society. There were very few physical attacks on Jews before 1933. People talk about the Dreyfus affair in France. There were almost no recorded instances of actual attacks on Jews. But within 10 years of Hitler coming to power, they tried to exterminate all of the Jews. So it was very, very quickly, the wind shifted. And you can feel this in the Jewish community. People, There's a lot of fear. People are afraid that things are just going to go like that um, and that no one's going to take their side. And they're going to go, well, you may kind of ask for it. Um, so the anti-Semitic narratives, and this is one reason we're very concerned with them, they're what precede the explosion of violence. I think it's very uh, misguided when people say, well, what, what does it matter if we're using anti-Semitism to criticize Israel? Because the anti-Semitism itself is like kind of an admonition that's looking for a gun. One of the main, the main singular idea of anti-Semitism is that Jews are corrosive to the social body, a corrosive element in society. And most of the specific accusations or permutations of this. Walter um, Lacour says that uh, Jews are seen as a fermented decomposition. And this is why you'll see uh, Jews associated with everything from pornography to drugs to AIDS to 9-11 to war to evil. They're, they're international. The internationalism is that they break up the cohesion of the nation. So they're, they're breaking up something that's harmonious. One of the anti-Semitic ideas are Jews are not real beings. So I'm going to start reading through these and tell you where you'll find them in the anti-Zionist anti circles. Um, uh, as the stone says, the Nazis saw Jews as shadows, ciphers, and numbered distractions. Sometimes they'd be considered air people as opposed to people who are tied to the land. Um, and again, this is abstraction versus groundedness, which is one of the metaphors that runs through it. So this is one reason that tends to refer to Israel as something other than a real country are congruent, if not derived, from anti-Semitism. People will use Israel in quotes as if it's not real. Uh, my favorite phrase is designing as the entity. Um, I've been told that there's a, a reason um, in Arabic that it, it uses this term, but whether, again, this term is derived from anti-Semitism uh, or not, it actually is congruent with, again, with this use of and with the assumptions of anti-Semitism. At the most extreme form, uh, certain anti-Semitic anti-Zionists believe that, uh, think that anyone who believes that Israel is a state, and for example, not a cancer, is a dupe of Zionist mind control. Of course, this means that basically everyone in the world is a Zionist, or that the Zionists control everyone in the world. The UN are Zionists, 
that are Zionists, but the Palestinians are Zionists, right? Because Israel can't exist. It's not because Jews aren't a real thing. There's also a specific problem with the notion that Zionism is imperialism. And I say this versus an idea that Zionism is colonialism or Zionism is racism, specifically imperialism. Because in the traditional leftist critique, imperialism is seen as the highest form of capitalism and the expansion of uh, uh, and imperialism is the expansion of finance capital around the globe. Um, so if traditionally in traditional anti-Semitism, Jews are related to money and abstraction, and imperialism is finance capital, it's basically saying the same thing. And again, Jews, you know, Jews didn't go to move to Palestine to escape oppression. They moved mm-hmm. to their money, you know, literally. Not to say this is Jews or money. Jews are, you know, finance capital moving around and attempting to plant itself somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, even if people don't mean that, they're playing, this is playing on this double impression of this word and its meaning. Sometimes they'll say, oh, when I say imperialism, I actually mean something else. And I'm like, yeah, but you're playing on the double meaning by not defining it. Um, one also important for anti Semitism, one of the, the stranger aspects of it, um, I think is very important to people, is that uh, the role of projection in it. I like to say Jews are magnetic. They become a lightning rod for other grievances. So, um, some of the historic anti Semitic ideas is uh, people project the things that they're afraid of in themselves. The, the um, through the journal and her conversation of enlightenment, the, uh, the chapter on anti Semitism talks about this a lot, about the role of projection. Um, Jews are dirty things, or cockroaches are vermin. Uh, sexuality, you know, remember the pictures of the Nazis parading around women with signs that said, I, I slept with a Jew. Uh, remember the Jews run the porn industry. Um, the psychology of the, the psychology that's implicit in the protocols of the elders of Zion is also a projection of feeling of powerlessness upon Jews who are vastly powerful and control everything. And again, this is an aversion. Jews are like there's 20 million Jews in the world. They're like a tiny, tiny minority. They, so they blow up what's this, and you know they are overrepresented in certain areas. But you know it becomes this huge thing, and, and what people are doing is projecting their own powerlessness. Um, this works to absolve the anti-Semite or someone influenced by anti-Semitism of all of their responsibility. The Jews become the only active agent and everyone else is passive. So this idea, again, is very disturbing when you look at certain anti-Zionist narratives. People um, say Israel causes anti-Semitism. So I, I have a different perspective. I think we're all active political agents. People choose how they're going to respond to uh, political situations. Um, people don't need to respond to Israel with anti-Semitism. People are making choices to do this. When uh, Hamas in their, in their charter say that the Zionists control the world through the Rotary Club, Israel, Israel didn't make them adopt that stance. They chose to adopt that because they're harnessing the traditional anti-Semitic narratives. You also find another version of this, uh, or this idea that there's an absolution of responsibility with um, some of the discourses around 9-11, which I originally accepted, which that was sort of a pure reaction to U.S. policy. It was like a sheer reaction to imperialism. But again, with this, we're seeing the U.S. is the only political actor in the world, and other people um, are not political actors themselves, as if they have no consciousness. It's almost colonial, um, because it's assuming that um, people outside of the first world have, have no agency of their own. They don't have thoughts of their own. Like they're purely just reacting. Right? They're almost like children. Um, exaggeration, you can ask about that later. Exaggeration is a problem with a lot of these things. Um, historical uh, facet of anti-Semitism. There's also scapegoating and diversion. This is one of the more important things. In the Middle Ages, there were a few... Jews were... In Europe, uh, Jews were extremely poor. They were forced to live in, um, in the shuttles in certain parts of town, um, periodically killed by Christians. Um, there were a few court Jews um, who were high often advisors to the, the feudal lords. 
Um, one of the things that Jews did was get into finance. The Christians, the church, the Roman Catholic Church had banned money lending. And so it was, a, it was a, again, a dirty profession, and Jews being on the bottom of the social totem pole were sort of, was one of the few jobs they could have. They couldn't own land in a lot of countries, so they couldn't farm. This is, again, what they were not allowed to do, they get used against them. Well, they're not farmers, they're, they're in all these abstract things, but well, they're not farmers, so they're not allowed to be farmers. Um, so Jews were forced into the position of being financiers, and then later when finance capital became a very important position. Some people, have, you know, their families for a long time had been in, been in this, um, uh, profession, and then they become sort of blamed for it. Um, this allowed them to be easy scapegoats. Rulers could blame the Jews or the Jewish advisors and hang around to drive. This way they could divert attention. They could revert revolts against themselves or revolts against the system by saying, no, no, go attack the Jewish community. The, the Russian pogroms are good examples of this. There's a real feeling today that Israel is serving the same function. It's acting as a stand-in for global capitalism and U.S. domination. So instead of attacking capitalism or attacking the U.S., people attack Zionism. Again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't do Palestine solidarity work or that all forms of anti-Zionism are this, but one certainly gets this impression a lot in the way that the discourse is used on the left. Certainly in a lot of the Arab countries, Israel is used to distract attention from its own internal regimes. This happens constantly. Saddam uh, Hussein did this. You know, He killed hundreds of thousands of his own people, but like promoted... Um, suicide bombings against the Israelis, and this is just, I don't think you give a shit about the Palestinians. This is an attempt to divert attention from his own internal problems. You'll see that this is one of the sort of stranger, this is one of the more complicated things. When you see the list of the UN resolutions against Israel, I believe there's more UN resolutions against Israel than any other country. Um, it becomes complicated to unpack. Um, so again, it's not that Israel isn't committing war crimes and human rights violations, but if you look at the list of, of internal conflicts in the U.S., the course is that Israel is 48 down on the list of, he says it's 48 down on the list of deaths from internal conflicts in the post-war era, in the post-World War II era, but it's first on the list of condemnations. And really what's happening is a lot of countries want to divert attention from their own internal problems by saying, you know, look over here, look over here. Again, it's not that those problems aren't real, but it's being used as a diversion by a lot of countries. So then people say, well, there's all these UN resolutions, Israel's the, the worst human rights violator in the world, but a kind of circular logic at the base of it. So it's very difficult to Another one of the um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is that Jews cause all the wars, and especially that they lose the wars. So I mean, what disrupts national harmony more than war? Jews are the war profiteers, um, in post in Germany after World War One, um, the Jews were said to have stabbed Germany in the back. Um, so uh, again, I think you see this when people say Israel is the primary cause of regional instability in the Middle East. Um, Israel has certainly uh, uh, added greatly to uh, conflict in the Middle East, but. Um, there's all kinds of conflict there otherwise. I mean, Israel did not cause the war between Iran and Iraq, which lasted for 10 years. I mean, my whole growing up, I just remember this war dragged on and on and on. Like a million people died, right? You know, Israel didn't cause the Lebanese civil war. It did intervene at the end and exacerbate it, but, you know, Israel didn't cause Syria to, to uh, intervene in Lebanon nor to um, create the 10 or 12 different factions that fought with each other. Um, but it becomes this idea that Israel is the cause of regional instability in the Middle East and the removal of Israel will create peace in the Middle East. I think, again, this is a mirage and uh, it's a mirage and it's a, it's a repetition of this notion that Jews caused all the wars. 
Um, here, again, the talk about the Zionist lobby, in particular the Mearsheimer and Walt, uh, Walt thesis, that it was the Zionist lobby that got the U.S. to attack Iraq to protect Israel. Um, again, I, I don't, their logic for their, I, read the, I didn't read the full book, I read the initial essay. Uh, their logic for coming up with this idea is not anti-Semitic, but it becomes the same idea, it becomes congruent with the idea. David Duke loves the idea. And the idea is coming out right as the Iraq war is going badly. Like a lot of liberals support the war, and then after a couple of years, like, oh no, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Well, somebody must have made us do this, you know, we wouldn't have done this ourselves. Somebody else must have made us do it, foreign agents. So. And then last, I'm going to talk about avoiding the question, avoiding the question of anti-Semitism via denial, acceptance, bait and switch, or refusal to accept responsibility. So on the left, we hear, before we hear a lot of things like, there's no such thing as anti-Semitism. And then we hear, well, there is anti-Semitism, but it's okay as long as nobody gets hurt. And now that attacks on Jews are up, it's like, well, Jews are being hurt, but it's Israel's fault. So you're like, well, when are you going to take responsibility for what's going on and, and take action against this? Um, on one hand, people try to dismiss anti-Semitism by describing how racism against black folks works, showing that, show that Ashkenazi Jews aren't treated the same way, and then say, well, anti-Semitism doesn't exist. But, I mean, this is a form of denial. Anti-Semitism doesn't work the same way that anti-black racism works. The same way that um, uh, homophobia doesn't work the same way that um, sexism or racism necessarily works. Like, they have different... Sometimes when we say, well, we're against all oppression or against all hierarchies, there's an assumption that these different forms of social oppression and hierarchy work in the same way. They work in very different ways sometimes. Sometimes they work similar, sometimes they work different. There's the Livingstone formulation. This is one of my favorites. Ken Livingstone, um, Red Ken, who's the mayor of London. Uh, this is named after him. He was confronted after a, and this you'll see a lot. Of people, like, right, this, this one's a conference. Um He was confronted. He was leading a party, and this reporter came up to him and was like, "Can I get a comment from you on acting?" He's like, "Oh, leave me alone." Guys, like, "No, no, no, really, I need to ask you." He's like, "You're a Nazi," and the guy goes, "Well, actually, I'm Jewish, and I, I don't really appreciate you calling me a Nazi." And uh, he goes, no, you're a Nazi, blah, 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 and he goes home. The, the reporter doesn't say anything about it, but another reporter sees this and he breaks it in the news the next day. So they go to Ken and they go, well, you called this Jewish reporter a Nazi and, you know, he asked you to stop and you kept going. He says, people are coming after me because I've been a long-time supporter of the Palestinians. And like, but that had nothing to do with Palestine. That had nothing to do with Israel. So um, I saw another form of this. I'm not going to name any names in New York, there was a speaker was invited to a left-wing event, and this speaker made, again, anti-Semitic comments that had nothing to do with Israel. Um, there was an internal discussion in the organization, which was between secular left-wing, the people discussing this were all secular left-wing Jews, and one said, you know, maybe we should invite this guy, I mean, this has been kind of a bad PR. And the other one says, no, we can't let the Zionists win. Okay, what does that mean? So then he comes and he speaks. And he says, oh, well, there are people here who want to silence me because I tell the truth about Israel. But your initial comment had absolutely nothing to do with Israel. So people are using, people are using discussions around Israel and claims of instrumentalization of anti-Semitism around Israel to avoid anti-Semitic comments that have nothing to do with Israel. So, again, there's a constant refusal to accept responsibility for anti-Semitism a refusal to accept that people are active agents in it, that they have a choice um, about whether they're using these narratives or not. But Zionism, we want to ask about the different kinds of Zionism and what it means they can. I think we've gone through a lot of different things. I can talk a little bit about anti-Zionism. Um, 
we'll highlight. Walter LaCourse is, one of the problems with these terms is that, uh, as Walter LaCourse says, the anti-Zionists have resolved to decide who is a Zionist and who is not. Um, and this becomes one of the bigger problems with questions of anti-Semitism. Um, in the general anti-oppression protocols that are accepted on the left, uh, people uh, coming out of standpoint of epistemology say, well, we should ask members of the targeted group themselves how they're going to respond to issues. So if you have a question of racism, people say, well, we should ask people of color how they feel about racism, and they should, we should accept their leadership on this question. Uh, we're talking about homophobia, so we should ask queer people what they feel about homophobia and how they want to deal with it. When we talk about sexism, so we should talk to women and see how, you know, what women feel about this and how we should deal with it. We talk about anti-Semitism, you can ask anybody but Jews about it, right? There's almost there's one group that's not allowed to do it, and if there ever is an exception, people say, well, we'll take anti-Zionist, existing anti-Zionist Jews and we'll only ask them, but we won't ask anybody else in the Jewish community, we won't ask any other Jewish activists. So I don't, myself don't even agree with these protocols, but I think it shows this clear kind of double standard and these clear double standards that are constantly used against Jews. So even if we're not using the anti-Semitic narratives, you, you see these constant double standards going on. Another problem is that Zionism is consistently conflated, I'll talk a little bit about Zionism, but the far right of it. Originally Zionism meant a bunch of different things, including people who just wanted Jews to move to Palestine and to not have any kind of state, just to form a cultural center. Um, some people wanted Jews to move to Palestine, unite with the Arabs, throw off the Ottoman, and then the British rule and form a binational state. Um, some people wanted a small Jewish state, and some people wanted a maximal Jewish state. Zionism actually means all, historically the Zionist movement has been all these things. Now you can read papers and they say, well, Zionism means uh, the attempt to create the Jewish, Jewish ethnic state over all of Mandate Palestine, over all of the West Bank and Gaza and Israel proper. But many people who consider, probably the majority of people who consider themselves Zionists, uh, want Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories. Um, that's what polls show of American Jews, that most American Jews want uh, Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories. So people say Zionism, and they, amongst all the other problems I've talked about, they'll conflate it with what's actually the far right of Zionism. try to talk about really existing anti-Zionism. People here are activists in the anti-Zionist movement and they think I'm wrong. This is, this is my perception of it from looking at it kind of closely, not from inside it, but from outside, um, about what it is and what it's doing. So again, there's a difference between Palestine solidarity and anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism is the ideology behind it. And uh, uh, what I'm talking about is really existing anti-Zionism. So I mean the political movement itself. I don't mean the, just the philosophy of the ideals behind it, how it's actually working as a political movement today. I think that anti-Zionism is the main place for left-right crossover today. If you're interested in left-right crossover, not so much in third position stuff, it's in anti-Zionism. It becomes a common meeting ground for Nazis, communists, anarchists, Islamists, liberals, nationalists, garden variety anti-Semites, peace and justice types, and many others. The big tent, and at least publicly, the groups rarely uh, differentiate themselves from each other, and they rarely disagree with each other publicly. There are a few exceptions to this, such as activists like Matthew Lyons and Michael Stoudemire, who do make these differentiations, but I think this is the exception and not a rule. There's no organized or organizational center to the anti-Zionist movement. In Palestine itself, there's multiple parties who are all over the political spectrum. In the West, there's dozens and dozens of overlapping groups and federations, and there doesn't seem to be any central apparatus. When these call like the BDS calls, you see like the list of who signed on. It's this huge list that goes down, right? So it's a very decentralized <coughs> And one of the problems with this is it's uh, not kind of a spectrum where one thing starts and another ends. Sometimes it can seem like a seamless spectrum 
to one side, which is very solid, very non-anti-Semitic politics, and to another that sort of openly peddles these anti-Semitic theories. Again, we'll talk about this use of the term Zionist. The, some, one of the creepier forms of the internal differentiations are these calls one here is to drive the Zionists out of Palestine solidarity. And it's never clear what this means. It might mean a Zionist might mean anyone who's not openly tolerant of anti-Semitism or openly backing uh, anti-Semitic groups such as Hamas, Hezbollah, or the Iranian regime. It might mean any advocate of a two-state solution, and therefore Fatah, uh, most Palestinians, most American Jews, they all become Zionists. Um, it might mean people who prefer a binational state, but will simply accept a two-state solution, like, just because, like, well, this is what we might have. And then sometimes it might mean anyone who's Jewish, no matter how committed to anti-Zionism they are, or how tolerant they are of anti-Semitism. So this kind of would be um, Jay Nott using it, and Galal Dassman in, uh, in Europe using the term. Talk about the left Islamist alliance, because I think this is going to create a problem, a continuing problem, for anti-fascists. Uh, with the collapse of the Oslo Accords in 2000, uh, and with the, more importantly with the rise of Hamas, there's been a big shift amongst Palestine solidarity. And so it's now, I believe that the core of these politics are now being driven by a, a left Islamist alliance, or people who want one. The most explicit version of this is the Respect Coalition in the UK. That's an alliance with the Trotskyist uh, Socialist Workers' Party. They're former sister parties, not the U.S. SWP, the U.K. SWP is the former sister party of both of the International Socialist Organization and then later of the left term who was a split who remained at their, their partner until 2003. Uh, respected the coalition of them and the U.K. branch of the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood. So they specifically take gender issues off the table, queer issues off the table, um, and they have this alliance together. Um, many people on the left, and in the left, anti-authoritarian milieu, openly back Hezbollah, uh, Norman Finkelstein, uh, like to go to demonstrations and chant rah-rah Hezbollah. Left Turn Magazine, openly backs Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, I believe the Tataman Group in Montreal, their big activist group there, is essentially a Hezbollah solidarity group, at least when they founded. That's certainly an impression I got. Matthew Lyons has endorsed a critical backing of Hezbollah. Post-structuralist gender theorist Judith Butler has publicly declared that Hamas and Hezbollah are progressive movements that are part of the global left. Counterpunch has printed a supposed, printed a supposed interview with Nasrallah, uh, Nasrallah, who is the leader of Hezbollah, and in this interview we called for leftists to support them. What was more interesting when this interview was revealed to be a hoax, the website left it up saying that they, the points being made were still valid. Uh, some people say there's good Islamists and bad Islamists. Uh, so Hamas and Hezbollah are good, but not the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Um, people also, I believe they really want a, uh, uh, a de facto uh, support of Iran in the same way that in the 50s and 60s a lot of fellow travelers in the U.S. wanted a de facto support of the Soviet Union. So um, if you look carefully and you read between the lines in a lot of the documents, you'll see this. One of the more, I think, uh, uh, kind of proof of this is in the U.K. during the last Gaza attack, there was a demonstration against the attack. And a left-wing activist, socialist activist, came at the time and said, no to IDF attacks, no to Hamas. And the leadership of the demonstration tore his sign up and threw him out of the demonstration. So, it doesn't talk about very much, but anti-Semitism, traditional, pure, straight-up anti-Semitism is one of the pillars of Islamic political philosophy. Um, and open tolerance of anti-Semitism is a precondition for a left Islamist alliance. And so, for pragmatic reasons, I think a lot of times, people who want this, they're not interested in anti-Semitism, they might even think it's embarrassing, but they need to do it in order to create this alliance. But once you're doing this, you're legitimizing across the board, and I think what we've like, seen here in Portland is a, a, 
an unintentional side effect of the legitimizing of anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel is that once you've taken that barrier down, once you've said anti-Semitism doesn't exist, we can laugh about it, it's not a problem opening the door to the anti-Semites. You can't just open the door and then expect that people aren't going to come in or, or, or expect that it will only go halfway. Um, a rejection of anti-Semitism in the same way the left rejects racism or homophobia would break this alliance. Um, there's four basic genealogical paths, political, I do a lot of intellectual history, so I do a lot of political genealogy for how one group goes to another to another. Um, there's four basic genealogical paths that anti-Semitism has actually entered, really existing anti-Zionist discourse. And again, it's just one influence, there's many different influences. Um, they're not the same, but there's an influence there. And it's an influence because there's different, anti-Zionism comes from different strains. Some of them are influenced and some of them aren't, and they're influenced in different ways. There's two main ones. Um, one is through Islamist politics in the Middle East. They actually come from German anti-Semitism. The Nazis spread the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in Egypt in the 30s, where they were picked up by the Muslim Brotherhood. Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they influenced seminal Islamist philosopher Kutub. This is where Hamas and Al-Qaeda get their ideas from this branch. Um, this is why the Hamas charter talks about the Zionists controlling the West through the Rotary Club. This is in the protocols. Osama bin Laden says that the Jews control the banks and the media in the U.S. Uh, there's a different versions of anti-Semitism are held by the Shiite Muslims, including Hezbollah and their um, friends in the Iranian theocracy. So, for example, I find this very interesting. Ahmadinejad has said that not, uh, the U.S. did 9-11, uh, while Al-Qaeda disagrees with this. So, Soviet anti-Zionism is another thing that's overlooked a lot. Russia was always a hotbed of anti-Semitism. That's where the protocols were forged. In the 50s and 60s, there was a wave of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union as well as in some of the satellite states like Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Jews were driven out. Some, some Jews were executed. Uh, others were driven out of political and professional positions, but under the guise of being Zionists. So nobody doubts that this is a pure code word, pure anti-Semitic campaign. But what they did is they exported this kind of left-wing anti-Semitic anti-Zionism to the secular left-wing movements in the Middle East and beyond. So in a sense, they anti-Semitized them. And so you see the anti-Semitism not just in the religious discourse, but in the secular discourse. Uh, if people are interested, we can talk about the PFLP, the Palestine, the front, People's Front Liberation of Palestine, and their work with the Red Cells um, and German anti-Semitism. Uh, I'll talk about one image. I was going to show this. I was going to have a slideshow. Uh, I found in a book, it was a, a poster from OSPAL, which is a global anti-imperialist group that Cubans helped found in the 70s. And it was a poster about the Lebanon War. And this guy with a rocket launcher firing at a blue Star of David with a cold snake in it. And I thought it was a very, I was like, oh, well, Star of David's blue, represents Israel, whatever. Um, coiled snake was interesting. I couldn't figure it out. And then I was looking at my copy of the protocols, and in the protocols, it's usually the serpent, and then one of the covers is a snake coiled around it. And I'm like, ooh, tricky. You're just like rushing the, rushing the imagery right in here, and you're, you know, so you're seeing the same anti-Semitic imagery in secular left-wing anti-imperialist publications. I mean, Cuba is not a hotbed of anti-Semitism, but the stuff is coming in. And even if it's not, even that's not where they get it from, even if it's not their genealogical link, it acts. It acts just the same as, right? Even if, oh, well, the snake actually meant something else to the artist, it acts in the same way. Uh, just quickly, two other ways that anti-Semitism comes in is a traditional event of black nationalism. <coughs> Those politics have influenced a lot of people's color politics today. 
And then you see the sort of nationalist anti-Semitism uh, or versions of it and that I think the form of the Mearsheim and Wall stuff and Allison Weir stuff, um, that they're using that same narrative. I'm not saying they're anti-Semites, but I'm saying they're using that same narrative and you will see anti-Semitism in purely nationalist uh, discourses. So anti-Semitism is a means of deepening, intensifying, and institutionalizing pre-existing hostilities between Arabs and Israelis. Again, the fact that there's a conflict in Palestine, and there always was one, uh, is not the product of anti-Semitism, but it got laid over it in order to intensify the situation. So, in conclusion, the dissemination of anti-Semitic narratives, tropes, and images throughout the left is likely to create an ongoing problem for anti-fascist organizing as anti-Zionism is becoming the main site for left-right crossover. This is because the same anti-Semitic narratives can be found both on the left and right. This will create a situation not just as we've seen here in Portland, but increasingly in radical media in which right-wing intellectuals are being promoted in left-wing spheres. Um, we're seeing links to right-wing um, uh, right-wing and anti-Semitic uh, media sources pop up on InfoShop, on Dissident Voice, other websites like that. Inevitably, their critique is also, it's not going to be about Zionism, because the right-wing intellectuals, their critique is about Jews. So the first step is, you might disagree with everything else they said about Zionism, but I hope people will agree that the first step in addressing this problem is to suppress the left dissemination of these explicitly anti-Semitic narratives that are working under the rouge of anti-Zionism. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're slaves, but... Um, uh, as well as we need to stop the legitimation of anti-Semitic writers and media sources. So people, when people like Israel Shamir and Galal Dasman um, are publishing articles, sometimes that are not anti-Semitic themselves, in left media sources, you'll see Israel Shamir published in Chinese the Times, you'll see him published in Race Trader. The legitimation of him as a legitimate thinker itself, and we need to stop, we need to stop these things. Even if the articles themselves are not problematic, these people need to be put beyond the pale. Um, and then to the real deep issue at the bottom, uh, will require uh, a recognition of why Israel was formed and, and, uh, and an answer of the question to do um, about what Jews are going to do when Israel is dissolved. So, I mean, until the left does this, I think it's going to be dogged by the question of anti Semitism. So, thank you. And we'll have a QA now. This was BMN, Volume 2, Episode 5. This episode was compiled on November 22, 2020.